Welcome to the Peds NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm Becky Carson, and perhaps you know me as your nurse practitioner faculty during your pediatric primary care course at the Catholic University of America. Or perhaps you found the Peds NP podcast because you're wet behind the ears in your work as a student or a new graduate provider and looking for some helpful tips on pediatric practice. Either way, we've got an earful for you today. So lend me your ears today as we go through a week on common problems of the ears in pediatrics and discuss some common problems related to talking with parents. Before we get started, I wanna give you a piece of advice that should give you some confidence. No one knows what they are looking at when they first look into pediatric ears for months. It's a learned skill and somewhat difficult to gently pull back the penna while putting the otoscope through the external ear canal to look at the tympanic membrane. And if you're lucky to get in there with a screaming toddler, it's even more difficult to assess what's going on, especially if you're learning in winter, when every child has constant colds, is healing from an otitis media last week, or is actively brewing one for you to see next week. It took me about six months of practice after becoming a nurse practitioner, full change of seasons through cold weather, to gain the skills that I really needed to actually see the TM and make sense of what I was seeing along with the history and my physical exam so that I could learn to apply the criteria of the American Academy of Pediatrics Acute Otitis Media Guidelines. My professor in graduate school, Marshall Lormer, used to make me draw what the TM looked like when I came out of an exam room. And while I hated the exercise at the time, it really helped me learn to quickly assess landmarks and know what I needed to be looking for. So be patient with yourself and get a friend to take a look at the TM2 if it's gonna change your management. For those of you in acute care, you're thinking, this doesn't apply to me. But oh, it does, because children with acute and chronic diseases get ear infections too. Chronic patients may be predisposed to these issues from lying supine. They might have craniofacial abnormalities. When I worked in radiation oncology, the brilliant radiation oncologist I worked with always came in when we had a child that had an ear concern, which happened more often than you'd think, especially when you're radiating a brain tumor, and he would ask for my help. My help, little old me. And he'd ask me to assess the external ear canal and the TM for signs of toxicity. Oncology patients get colds and ear infections too, which we saw all too often. Patients with MRCP put things in their ears. Mastoiditis is a serious illness that should be managed emergently. And that fever in your PICU patient could very well be from an otitis, just to name a few. Otitis media isn't the only ear issue, but we're kind of focusing on it today. The big take home that I wanna give you all today shouldn't surprise you. I want us to take all these assessments and diagnoses of acute otitis media back to the physiology back to the pathophysiology, and use that knowledge base to make sense of what's going on in our patients. Then we're gonna apply another one of my favorite principles in the Peds NP. Spend an extra five minutes and talk about it with the parents. Tell them what's going on on a level that they can understand. It's gonna help you gain their trust and buy-in on your management plan. We know that acute otitis media is multifactorial and involves a number of criteria predisposing conditions, and risk factors. Remember that the relationship between age and severity of illness is more than just immunity, risk factors, and the pathogens. The anatomy plays a role too. 
The eustachian tubes are more horizontally oriented in infancy and early toddlerhood before they become more vertical as children grow taller as preschoolers, which gravity then allows them to drain a little bit better. When respiratory viruses infect the nasal passages, we see inflammation and mucus fill up the eustachian tubes in the middle ear. Its presence where it shouldn't be interrupts the ability of the eustachian tubes to clear the nasopharyngeal flora that enters the middle ear. And then this in turn causes an effusion where bacteria can thrive. The body is then mounting an inflammatory response and either a serous or superative fluid fills up the eustachian tube, bulging against a patent tympanic membrane, which creates pain and discomfort for the child. It can be tough to explain these concepts to parents who are envisioning a literal drum inside of the ear and also can't connect their child's recent URI to the now AOM. I tell them to picture a Coke bottle, something that everybody knows and is ubiquitous in our everyday life. Set it on its side, just like the horizontal orientation of a eustachian tube in your baby, and then pretend that it gets filled up with water. Well, some of it will drain out, but some of it will get stuck because that bottle is sitting sideways instead of inverted like in us grown-ups. And when that fluid in there sits around for too long and the child has other risk factors like a family history, daycare, tobacco smoke, and air pollution exposure, which impair the cilia clearance, pacifier use, bottle propping, or incomplete immunizations, just to name a few of them, then that fluid can become super infected by bacteria. Your child's cold is like when you put leftovers in the refrigerator after dinner. It's a perfectly good meal and your kid is doing just fine with their runny nose for the first week or so of their illness. But then let that Tupperware sit in the fridge for another 10 days and I dare you to open up and smell it. It's going to be disgusting. Read infected. It started out as a self-limited URI, then it becomes an acute otitis media when our common otopathogens, strep pneumo, Moraxella and Heb colonize the middle ear. We also want to reinforce the importance of finishing the entire antibiotic course, even if their child starts feeling better. Tell them that there should be no more medication left in the bottle at the end of the treatment, and if there is, it's going to come back and it's going to be worse. A little bit of fear-mongering might help you gain some medication compliance, because what's worse is these parents that tell me that they gave their child a sip of amoxicillin when they got a cold because they had it left over from the last time they got a cold and they didn't want them to get another ear infection. Well, you can facepalm in your brain, but this is exactly the kind of thing that we need to prevent as healthcare providers in both our prescribing practices and the anticipatory guidance that we discuss with families. It's our responsibility to make sure that families go home understanding how to care for their child. What could they do instead? Suction their child's nose with saline and a bulb or a nasal aspirator if they're a baby? Put their toddlers in a warm bath or steamy bathroom with the shower running to help get the nasal passages to open up and drain? Giving your family these kinds of basic but practical advice tips can really help their understanding and confidence in providing care for their child at home while also engendering trust in you because you finally made it make sense to them. They're inappropriately giving that antibiotic because they're scared. So let's prevent that, help them be confident, and then you don't have to deal with antibiotic misuse. As we're finishing up our conversation on talking with parents, I wanna quickly address cough and cold medicines in children. A bit of background. 
There were infant deaths in the early 2000s that led to a citizen's petition that cough and cold medicines had not been proven to be safe or effective in children under six years of age. And they claim that these products were not generally recognized as safe and effective by professional organizations and agencies. We know that children less than age four are more prone to ingestions in general, and combined medications with multiple medications in them tend to be more dangerous and can lead to overdoses and toxicity of medications like acetaminophen. Therefore, in 2013, the AAP advised that cough and cold medicines should not be prescribed, recommended, or used for respiratory illnesses in young children. A 2017 article by Green et al. that examined the safety profile of cough and cold medicines in children under 12 years of age from a poison control surveillance program found that the rate of adverse events related to these medications was low. Their wording was low. There were 20 deaths out of their 4,200 sample size, making a rate of 0.6%, most of which occurred in children less than two years of age. As a parent of an under age two toddler and a treatment remedy that isn't medically necessary, you won't be able to convince me or the parents of those 20 other children that cough and cold medicines are worthwhile treatments for self-limited viruses. The authors point out that the deaths occurred from non-therapeutic doses. Two cases were accidental, unsupervised ingestions, two were medication errors, and nine involved other exposure reasons. The intent was not reported in the remaining seven cases. My point is that children all over the world get cold viruses without access to these medications, and they do just fine. Is even a 0.6% chance worth it? I certainly don't have these medications in my house. But that doesn't stop our families from wanting their child to feel better and wanting to actually do something to help their child feel better. So I help my families think through what the real benefit of cough medicine is, that it's syrupy and sugary and coats the throat. We can get that same benefit from honey and parents can make their own cough syrup by mixing it with a little bit of soda or juice to the desired taste or consistency. Do not give honey to children under 12 months of age due to the risk of infantile botulism. I don't see any benefit in homeopathic honey-based products because there's no evidence that they have any added benefit and they're generally very expensive in comparison to a jar of honey. A 2017 FDA expert roundtable on cough suppressants in children agreed that the data indicate that there are really no good medications for treating acute cough with perhaps the exception of honey. You should absolutely never prescribe an opioid for cough suppression in a child. Let's keep both the safety profiles and the physiology and pathophysiology of our patients in mind when we offer remedies for comfort care. I know I gave you an earful today on the Peds MP and hopefully it was music to your ears. Always take it back to the physiology and take an extra five minutes to talk with your families to build trust improve compliance, and cement your critical thinking. Be patient with yourself as you learn the otoscopic exam. And remember that when you're wrestling with a two-year-old who's kicking and screaming that they don't want you anywhere near their ears, that you're doing this for the kids. Take care.